This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I'm incredibly honored to be in dialogue today with my guest, Councilman Will Jawando. He is the author of the new book, My Seven Black Fathers, a young activist memoir of race, family, and the mentors who made him whole, published in New York by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, 2022. Will, it's a blessing to be in communication with you. Same here. Thanks for having me, Ari. Thank you. To begin, uh, tell us about yourself. Can you share with us any background information about your life that would contextualize your memoir? Sure. Yeah, you know, I grew up in the Silver Spring area, which is where much of this book is based. Uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, right outside of D.C., the son of a Nigerian immigrant, a white mom from Kansas, um, and who had moved here for expanded opportunity, both economically, but also better understanding of their interracial relationship. Uh, And I grew up uh, in a very diverse community, uh, but also a community with many disparities um, in in educational outcomes and income and housing. Uh, And I saw from a very young age, those disparities play out. Um, But I had uh, these life rafts, you know, uh, these father figures, these mentors, that despite a uh, very uh, fractured and uh, non-existent relationship with my biological father, uh, which got even worse once my parents divorced when I was six and I lived with my mother, they stepped in and gave me what I needed to become a whole person and helped steer me and keep me on the right path when I might have strayed and gave me the skills and the love uh, and the capacity ultimately for forgiveness uh, of, of my own father later in life. And so, but I, it really comes from my life experiences growing up here, seeing disparity, uh, having friends. I, I talk about my friend Calfani, who I meet in fifth grade, who is a, a mentor, a peer mentor, who unfortunately loses his life to gun violence uh, when we're exiting high school. Um, and I know he didn't have access to these relationships 
these life-saving relationships with father figures and mentors, uh, and that if he had, he might still be here with us. And so uh, I've always just been really attuned to some of the disparities, both on a personal level and a policy and a programmatic level. Uh, and that context has kind of charted my path from everything I've done, from becoming a civil rights lawyer, from working in the White House, to now as an elected official and an author. Uh, it's all kind of interconnected, trying to make sure that people have the tools that they need to succeed and 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 utilize their God-given potential. What contribution does your book make to the study of education? You know, I think it, it's uh, significant, actually. And I'm hoping one of the main uh, kind of takeaways and one of the main areas where this book is utilized is in the educational arena. You know, um, I think particularly it's particularly suited for middle school, high school, college range. Um, and for example, uh, you know, I talk one of my seven black fathers, the way the book is structured there's an introduction in seven chapters. Each one of the fathers is a chapter. Uh, my chapter two is Mr. Williams, my fourth grade math teacher, uh, who is the only black male teacher I will ever have um, and who is a kind of a superhero figure in the book. Uh, he is the first African-American man I see wear a suit and tie every day. Uh, he not only teaches us math, he teaches us grammar and English. And how to work together and helps to, helps me deal with bullying. Um, many of the common themes that are in the educational system today uh, makes us helps us to have self confidence in ourselves and uh, as students, um, and and ultimately teaches me how to tie a tie and gives me my first tie. Um, and so I think he's an example of, and I talk about this in the book, uh, one of the two percent of African American males who are teachers. They only make up 2% of the teaching profession. Uh, it's one of the things that as a policy and a program, we need to you know, recruit, train, and compensate and uh, retain our black male educators in particular. They can have a, research shows us that they have a outsized impact on student achievement for black students. When you have one black teacher in the elementary grades, your scores are going to be much higher uh, in middle and high school. And uh, so it's just one of the examples of the nexus of education. But if much of my story, especially in the early years, is about me being dealing with educational inequity and bias and discrimination and racism, uh, bouncing around from several schools, for almost five schools between kindergarten and eighth grade uh, and dealing with uh, the institutional, structural, and individual racism and bias at various places. Um, and so I think this has a lot to do with educational, uh, the educational system. Uh, it's also several of my mentors, uh, Wayne Holmes, who's my high school choir director, uh, gospel choir director, and also a coach at the school, uh, is one of the mentors as well. So I think there's a lot of nexus to education here. I also talk about my collegiate experiences uh, at Catholic University, uh, both undergrad and law school. So there's a lot of education kind of interwoven here. Uh, it's what I've spent a lot of my work on as education policy attorney. So I think uh, it, there has both specific critique, but also overall kind of context of education as, as a big part of the story. What does your book teach us about masculinity? Uh, that it is varied. 
and diverse and complex, um, particularly black masculinity. Um, you know, there's a lot that's been said about us as black men and about who we are and what we are and what we are not. Uh, a whole economic system built on the backs of enslaving and demonizing and dehumanizing a people um, here in America through chattel slavery and Jim Crow and, ma and now mass incarceration. Uh, that legacy and history has taken a toll and uh, it has, uh, for better or for worse, and much for worse, has shaped a, I think, a skewed view of, of what it means to be a Black man in America in particular, um, and has had the effect of kind of shutting us off to love and compassion and wholeness uh, that I receive from each of these mentors and so many others uh, to help keep me open to the relationships, but also open to my full potential. And so I hope one of the things that this does is not only for masculinity, but also for fatherhood, is expand the view. Uh, each of these men is very different. They're masculine and, and they're fathers in different ways to me. Um, uh, but they all have compassion and intentionality in their relationships. Um, and so what I hope to do is show a, a broader, more expansive view of what it means to be a Black man, what it means to be a father, uh, and that we are not just one thing. We're not what society tells us we are. We can be multiple things. And, and we are worthy of love and compassion and care. In what ways was the process of writing this book therapeutic for you? Did you, did you achieve closure in regard to inner trauma that you kept inside? Why or why not? How so or how not? Yeah, this was, uh, you know, I wrote this book during the what I call the, the, the triple pandemics. You know, we had the COVID-19 health pandemic. We had the economic uh, fallout, which disproportionately was felt by low-income communities of color. And then we had the racial justice uh, reckoning uh, with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey and so many others, where we had a global outcry uh, for, the, for rights for Black people, particularly in the context of the criminal justice system. And all that happened at the same time. Um, and it was it was traumatic uh, for everyone has gone through something during these last two years. But if you're a person of color, if you're a black person in particular, you went through multiple things. And uh, you know, and so writing this book during that time uh, was a, was a kind of a much needed outlet to write an affirmative story about the power these relationships, these men, these fathers had and have throughout our communities, not only had in my life, but have throughout our community, the power to change and save lives, uh, despite the systems and structures that we see crumbling and, and failing us in many ways around us that we need to build up. But there's this power in these relationships that can serve as a counterbalance and a counterweight uh, to in a life raft, as I said, in, in this in this storm that's brewing, and that was helpful for me to get through the time the last two years. You know, as a, as an elected official, as a father, as a husband, uh, as a black man, um, and 
and yes, also there was a personal, you know, kind of uh, therapeutic nature to it. You know, I, I interviewed the those fathers that are alive, five of the seven. Obviously, my father's passed away and Mr. Williams has passed away. But the others I was able to speak to uh, and, you know, reminisce and reconnect. And uh, and then obviously telling my story of my my journey of father loss and father gain and uh, and how that all came together. Uh, and then reconciliation with my dad, that was a healing story to tell and, uh, not always easy, but, but it was cathartic in many ways personally, but also just, I think I'm hoping it can be a, a really affirmative message for everyone in society who's, who's gone through something these last few years. What lessons can non-African Americans glean from this book? Do you feel that this book offers similar or different messages to non-African Americans than African Americans? Why or why not? Yeah, you know, I think it, it one of the great things, I think we've gotten so many great reviews and people have connected and I've got a chance to go on a book tour and talk to a lot of people of all races and genders and faiths. Um, there are some really uh, important universal themes here. You know, like if I were to ask you, who are your seven? Who are the people that mentored you, that fathered or mothered you, that poured into you to make you who you are today? You know, we'd all have a list. Uh, we might not have thought about it as intentionally as that, but that's one of the things I hope people that interact with the text will do. Um, and then reach out to those people and thank them uh, if they're still here. And, and then also think about what they taught you and how you how you're paying that forward and being that person for someone else. I think that's universal uh, across gender, across race and ethnicity. And uh, we all need people to help us along the way. You know, it, it, no, none of us get to where we are without help uh, and assistance and mentorship and guidance. And we need more of it. And that's one of the calls to action here, too. I also think the themes of estrangement and disconnection and reconciliation from a parent, from a father or a loved one. That's something that is a, a pretty universal theme. You know, how many of us have issues unresolved with a parent or a father or a loved one that maybe we don't resolve or we haven't yet, or that we should uh, in forgiveness, you know, and, and anger at those people and, and all those complex feelings, which I describe in my journey with my father biological father, I think are uh, common themes. And so I think there's something in here for everybody. Um, and uh, I think there's a you know particular, particularly poignant message for the African-American community through my experience that these relationships are powerful, but I think they're powerful in everyone's lives. And uh, I, I hope that that, I, as I've seen, as I've gone around to talk about the book, that has become apparent that a lot of people have pulled different things out of this book. One individual that you devote attention to in the book is Joseph Jacob. What skills did he teach you? Can you describe his virtues and attributes? Yeah, Joseph Jacob is is a, uh, is my stepfather. He's still my he's still around today. Uh, I meet him uh, when my mom takes a new job at Business Publishers in, in around 1989. Um, and I'm six years old, my parents have just split or are about to split. And Joseph is the printer at my mom's newsletter publishing company. Uh, she's the production manager. So she produ 
creates all the artwork for the newsletters, he prints them. So they're working together on a daily basis. And he's really the first man, the first person that looks like me uh, to engage with me in a deep and meaningful way. Uh, you know, I talk about my father loss and how he's a, I describe him in the book, my biological father is an absent presence, even though he's in the house, the first six years of my life, there's really no very little engagement and I'm yearning for that connection and that, uh, quality time. And Joseph gives it to me and he's asking how my day is. And he's taking me for ice cream and he's teaching me how to ride a bike and change an oil on a car and, uh, you know, chop wood, a lot of these things that you traditionally would learn from a father figure. Um, and he steps up in that void in a big way at a time when I really needed it, uh, where I might have strayed and become, an, become hardened uh, to the lack of love and care I was getting from my father. And uh, he's really, so I describe his love as a real practical and present love. Uh, he was very he was there. He was dependable. He was concerned about what I was doing and what I felt and thought uh, and engaged me in conversation, uh, not just as a child, but as a person. And uh, and then taught me a lot of these skills, you know, that uh, I would I'm still using today, you know, uh, and that was a, uh, a much needed intervention and the first of many of these men to step into my life. But he played a key role uh, at that critical time. Who was Dean Sanwula? What was his relationship like with you and your family? How did your interaction with Dean unfold? And what attributes of Dean's made him worthy of being a mentor to you? Yeah, Dean Sanwula is um, the IT manager at my mom's job. And to backtrack a minute, I meet three of my seven fathers, including my stepfather, at my mom's job, which was like my de facto after school program. I went there after school most days. And thankfully, the head of the company would let me run around and uh, interact with the staff. And so Dean is the IT manager there. He's a Nigerian. Uh, who is naturalized and has dual citizenship. And one of the things that I was yearning for, whether I knew it or not as a young child, but certainly as I got older, was a connection to my Nigerian heritage. You know, my dad's from Nigeria. So not only was I yearning for connection to him personally, I also wanted to know more about that part of my heritage because I didn't know many of those family members. And... Dean, from from a very early age, demonstrates as I interact with him as a you know a, a young person, he's kind of a way to an insight into that world. You know, he travels back and forth to Nigeria. He has business there. He has business in the U.S. Um, and I'm very curious about his life and what he's doing. And he would always say to me, like, "You got to go to Nigeria. You got to go to Nigeria one day. You know, you have to learn about your." where you're from, where your ancestors are from. And I end up, uh, Dean plays a significant role as a model. You know, he's he's got this hustle about him uh, that I describe in the book. 
uh, of just working really hard and making things happen, uh, which is something he teaches me by showing me, you know, some, some lessons you learn from people talking to you about them. So, and most you learn from watching what people do. And, uh, this is an example of that. And Dean is, is a key figure because he, um, takes me to Nigeria for the first time, uh, when I'm 19 and pays for my trip. And I outline that story in the book, which, uh, helps lead to a really transformative trip a couple of years later with my father to Nigeria, his first in 30 years and our only trip there together. Um, and so Dean is a, plays a really important role in modeling, uh, but also directly connecting me to my Nigerian, Nigerian heritage. How did your, speaking of Nigeria, how did your father remember the Nigerian civil war? What was his perspective on the tragedy in Biafra and how did he, speak of it in your home did he have any particular view of nigeria's history politics and dictatorship and to what degree did trauma he experienced in nigeria manifest in his own personal psychological development yeah that's a big question i mean we we talked about it later in life when i was an adult uh you know he uh that was a turbulent time right you know the the, the time he was born at the time of kind of pre-independence when Nigeria was still a colonial nation of uh, Britain and very different. And he lived through that time and kind of came of age uh, as the uh, independence movement in the 60s and 70s was happening across Africa. And, and of course, that led to, uh, and he was there uh, on during the Biafran Civil War. And while much of it took place in the East, um, there was spillover across the whole country. And I, he, I remember him telling me one time he was getting off the bus and he saw someone just shot in front of him uh, by, by a police officer or somebody, and he had to step over the body. Um, so, you know, things like that, very traumatic experiences. Um, he was fortunate, though, to, you know, be able to go over to the U.S. to study and took advantage of that. And obviously, that's where he met my mom. Um, but I do think the the instability that was starting to emerge or had emerged during his lifetime, you know, when he was born in Nigeria, things were very colonial and orderly. You know, if you look at a 1950s Nigeria, looks very different from a 1975 Nigeria. And my dad actually, you know, he he would he told me one story later in life that he was uh, the Queen of England was on one of her tours. The same Queen of England who's Queen of England right now, uh, Elizabeth, was on one of her tours, and every it was a big deal, and everyone dressed up to go kind of view her coming through the capital of Lagos, which is uh, very close to where my dad grew up and how that was a really big deal. And he pressed his clothes and got up and did it. You compare that and contrast that to kind of a civil, the Biafran civil war time where it was just, everything was up in the air and you had coup d'etats and uh, a lot of instability. And so I think that put into question, you know, him going back to Nigeria and what it meant for him. And um, 
that he had to kind of make his way in the U.S. And so, uh, yeah, I think it had an impact um, on on uh, his development and his worldview for sure. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Can you tell us about your grandmother, Alhaja Tebat Jawando? Um, can you tell us about her life, her career, her Islamic faith at home? I'd be curious to ask you how she impacted you and how she impacted your personal identity. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you've read the book, Ari. The, unfortunately, I, I didn't have as strong of a relationship and knowledge about her during her life as I wanted. Um, it was actually a, you know, a big point of conflict and contention with my father that, uh, you know, I only would meet her physically one time when I was one years old and she comes over to the U S I have the picture, but obviously I don't remember much of it. And I would talk to her on the phone on crackly lines, you know, from Nigeria occasionally growing up. Um, but one of the losses that accompanied my loss of my father and our relationship early on was also a connection to her. And I would learn later that my dad was, you know, he's the youngest of her four children and was the last to leave home and uh, was her baby boy and was very close to him. And she was very, he was very close to her. And I didn't have that relationship because I just wasn't around her. And, and she would, she passes away uh, when I'm, I think in 1995, uh, you know, when I'm 13 years old and we, we don't go to the funeral because they're Muslim. You mentioned al Haja. That mm. means that she has made the Hajj to Mecca. That's an, a mm. name of honor and Muslim faith that they give to women and uh, a slightly different version for men that make the pilgrimage to Mecca, which is the the most holy and you know honorable thing you can do as a as a Muslim. And she had made that really difficult journey uh, at a time when it was not easy to do so from Nigeria. Um, and so she was very respected in the community. I learned all this after the fact, you know, after she passes away. It's not something I got to learn from her while she was alive, because, as I said, she had passed away and was buried within 48 hours. And my dad uh, either didn't want to or didn't have the means or both to take us to the funeral. Um, and that was a really a, a point of conflict for us. I was very angry about that for a long time. And I would find out later he was, you know, he was embarrassed and depressed that he couldn't have the resources and didn't want to ask to try to make that trip. But uh, it uh, it had an impact on our relationship. So she was an amazing woman, from what I'm told by other family friend members, aunts and uncles. And what I've learned about her, I include some of that in the book. 
but unfortunately it was all most of it was secondhand because and later in life because I didn't get to have the relationship I wanted to have with her that I yearned for uh, as a child. Can you tell us about your aunt Andrea? What were her character virtues? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I'm glad you're asking about some of the women in the book because sometimes people ask me, well, my seven black fathers, are there any women in the book? I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> and uh, Aunt Andrea is one who has a significant role in my faith development. Uh, she is the sister-in-law of my stepfather, Joseph Jacobs. So his brother, Stephen, uh, that's Andrea is his wife. And they uh, live in the in the region here near us, and are uh, really she plays an integral role in my Christian faith. Uh, I start, I go to, I tell the story of of my kind of uh, awakening, so to speak, in my in my faith journey, and Aunt Andrea is at the center of that. As far as I start attending church with them. Uh, in my teenage years, and and she's very supportive of uh, my faith journey, and she's just very kind. You know, one of the things that's a, a a theme in the book too, and I talk about this in relation to my grandmother, is that you know society treated me, and I you know sociologically as a sociology major as a black child, you know, not as a biracial child, as a black child, and. Um, even though I am biracial, my mom's white, my dad's Nigerian, to most people I appear just to be, you know, as African-American in, in the boxes that we put people in. And part of that experience, a theme through the book is me trying to connect with my African-American identity, as well as with my Nigerian identity, as well as with my uh, mom's family, which I had probably the strongest connection to because I was with her and I knew those people the most. I was very connected to my grandmother, my mother's mother. Uh, she was the only kind of living grandparent that I had a strong relationship with. And, but a theme of that was trying to, and yearning for connection to my black identity. A part of that, part of the manifestation of that was wanting a connection to uh, black institutions, but also like basketball and, and the black church, but also to black women. Um, and, you know, whether it was my grandmother, that yearning for that relationship, or on Andrea, who kind of served as a surrogate mother to me uh, in the context of, you know, uh, being a black woman from the South, from South Carolina, and exposing me to that heritage and history. Um, there's other women in the book, Lorraine Miller, my first boss in Nancy Pelosi's office, Carolyn Mosley, who's my boss in Senator Obama's office and dates my dad. But there, there's a kind of a through line there of these strong black women who uh, I yearned for connection to and, and got a lot from as well. And uh, in addition to obviously my mother as a as a constant in my life uh, and a really strong person. So Aunt Andrea was really helpful in creating some of that outlet, connecting me to culture and to the, to my faith and helping me accept and understand what I was feeling uh, as we went through church. And she was kind of my de facto Bible study uh, teacher. Um, and uh, so she was, she played a, a very significant role um, at that time in my life as well. 
Can you tell us about Joy? How did the crush you had on her impact you personally? How did it change you as a person? Did you ever learn of what happened to Joy after you left high school? What lessons would you teach others about love and relationships based on your experience in regard to Joy? That's a, that's a very deep, deep, deep into the text question. That's interesting. Um, just so, yeah, Joy is a, a, a an upperclassman I meet when I go to St. John's College High School on a scholarship. And um, she, uh, uh, I'm a freshman, you know, trying to muster up the courage to talk to her. And I eventually do. Um, and it's kind of like a, uh, a relationship before I understand what relationships are. You know, it's like, I don't really, I haven't had a girlfriend at that point. I don't really, you know, I, I know what I've seen on television or what people have told me, but it's my first kind of experience um, with, you know, uh, a high school like relationship. Um, and, you know, she still lives in the area, I think. And, and I, I don't uh, we're not as in touch, but uh, she was very kind to me um, is what I remember from Joy. And I think it helped frame all my future relationships is that kindness is a kind of a core component um, and uh, equality within a relationship, you know, cause it would have been very easy for her to, because she was older to kind of look down upon me or kind of belittle me, but she didn't, you know, we were very equal in our, in our time together. And I think as I reflect on it, those are two things that, uh, kind of stick out to me about qualities or the nature of our our brief uh you know uh infatuation and relationship in my freshman year of high school kindness and uh equal footing in a relationship which i try to still model today who was jay fletcher how did you meet can you tell us about him what kinds of things would you and jay do together um, so Jay, uh, as is one of the, uh, three black fathers that I meet at my mom's job, um, he's a reporter at business publishers, uh, and part of this newsletter publishing company that my mom works at. And he's the first openly gay black man that I meet and connect with. And I don't know that at first, but it becomes apparent over time. And he's kind of a, a real traditional mentor in the in the terms of he's very intentional about what he exposes me to. I think you know fathering, mentorship, you know some core components are you know teaching someone skills, being there to uh, be open and have conversation, showing care and concern. Uh, but and, but he was very intentional in what he exposed me to uh, and he was very aware that there were certain things I, I I wasn't learning and I didn't get, and I wasn't exposed to like healthy eating. Uh, he's the first person that shows me what steamed spinach looks like, you know, when I'm like, what is that? Um, he takes me to my first Broadway play uh, in New York, which was a very transformative experience for me that I describe in the book. Um, he uh, teaches me about, games like backgammon and risk and chess. Uh, we play tennis and ride bikes, um, do a lot of physical activity. 
Um, and so he's very intentional about what he exposes me to things that he, he knew I wasn't going to get to likely wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. Um, and, and he also, uh, you know, is very open in his dialogue with me and our back and forth. And we do a lot of sparring, you know, it's very inquisitive and precocious and he, he appreciates that. Whereas in school, I was kind of disciplined harshly in some scenarios for being inquisitive and outgoing as a young black child. Jay's the opposite of that. He uh, engages in those, in those conversations. So yeah, he was a, a key figure um, and uh, ended up being the best man in my wedding uh, uh, years later, despite our age difference. Another person I'd be curious to ask you about is Mr. Williams. Who was he? How did he impact your personal development? Yeah, you're giving away the whole book here, Ari. You know, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just kidding. There's so much in the, each of these chapters um, and each of these men, what they give me, it's it's impossible to cover it in any short period of time. But uh, Mr. Williams is my fourth grade math teacher. I think, as I mentioned, the only black male teacher I'd ever have um, and uh, plays a, a huge role in my development my confidence. He helps me deal with bullying. Uh, he teaches me math, which which is and has remained my favorite subject. Um, and uh, and and also uh, provided an example of something I had never seen. You know, some a professional, well dressed African American man who had confidence and pride uh, in what he did and and took great care. Um, and helped us see all of us in the class, our own innate value uh, and self-worth, which is a big deal for kids, particularly kids uh, of color and low-income kids. And uh, he's almost kind of a mythic figure in the book. I only knew him nine months, you know, in fourth grade, 30 years ago. Didn't know his first name. It's actually Chuck, uh, Chuck Williams. But, uh, I don't learn that until I'm researching the book years, you know, obviously years later, uh, but he had a really outsized influence on my life. Um, and uh, I'm thankful that to have met him. What was it like for you being a staffer for then Senator Obama? What were the office team dynamics like? What are your memories of this period in your life? Well, Barack Obama, Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, I meet him as Senator Obama. Uh, has played a tremendous role in my professional life and, and personal uh, development. You know, I first worked for him in the United States Senate, and I tell the story about, which is a very f- interesting story about how I make my way to the Senate. I'll let people read the book for that. But uh, he is, uh, we have some s- significant biographical similarities. We both have uh, African fathers, his from Kenya, mine from Nigeria. Uh, we both have white moms from Kansas, uh, and we ended up marrying great women named Michelle. Uh, and then we ended up having daughters. He had two daughters. I had three daughters and then a son, but uh, we followed in his path in that way as well. So when I first start working for him, <clears throat> I'm engaged to be married to Michelle. And so he introduces me at the first staff meeting in the Senate. As we have a new staffer, Will Jawando, uh, 
who has a African dad, a white mom from Kansas, and a fiance named Michelle, who apparently is my long lost brother. You know, and everyone in the and starts laughing in the in the uh, office, and I'm blushing. Um, but from the very beginning, he um, was very. Even though I didn't start to develop a deeper relationship with him until later, he was very uh, uh, kind uh, and accommodating and and just kind of mentored by example fathered by example like he he carried himself in such a way that she had to respect um you know there's some people you meet where you're you have an idea of who they are and you're worried about if you meet them they might let you down he was not that person he 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 was who he was a man of high character and uh confidence and in the office, everyone in the office knew that, you know, we had in the Senate office in particular and in the administration as well, later in the White House and the campaign, you had top notch folks. I mean, people who were the top in their respective fields coming to work for this man because they knew uh, that he had the vision and the character and the leadership potential to really take us and the country in a different direction and and no one does anything alone that's a big point of this book but uh he had a top-notch team and uh, i talk about some of those inner dynamics in the office and the staff and the quality where people had come from and just how how high a level that people were what kinds of friends did you make as a staffer in the obama white house what kinds of friendships did you cultivate can you share some specific examples? I had some, yeah, lifelong friends. Uh, Paul Montero, uh, who we shared an office in the White House, he he handled a lot of the faith-based outreach and worked with uh, uh, immigrant communities. Uh, he's one of my best friends. He's actually godfather to my youngest daughter, Ava. And uh, we meet in the Obama world and kind of grow up together. Um, both young lawyers from Maryland. Uh, I meet Michael Stratmanis, um, who is the deputy chief of staff to Barack Obama's in the Senate office, and then becomes his uh, a leader in the White House in the Office of Public Engagement, the chief of staff there, uh, where I worked. And he's one of my closest friends and mentors to this day. I talk about him in the book. And I think one of the the really, for lack of a more technical term, coolest things about um, these relationships, all of them, is that they yielded other relationships, um, that the engagement and the care and the concern and love of my seven black fathers gave me a whole bevy of other caring relationships, like Michael Stratmanis, whether they be peers or mentors or both, for people that I was able to mentor, um, really meaningful relationships. And, uh, you know, Karen Richardson, uh, another friend who I worked in the Senate in the White House with and shared an office, a lifelong friend. She worked on foreign policy, uh, still in touch to this day. Um, and we worked really closely together on the Health Care Affordable Care Act and getting that passed, which was an awesome day uh, in, in American history. Um, so yeah, a lot of lot of important relationships, a lot of friendships, um, and then obviously the time I was able to spend with the president himself. You know, 
Reggie Love, who's was the president's body man uh, and who set up all the basketball games for the president, that many of which I was fortunate to play in, which I talk about in the book. Uh, he's one of my very close friends to this day as well. So a uh, lot of too many to mention, but those are a few. How did you f- come to found the organization and initiative, My Brother's Keeper? Why did you choose the name? And how has the organization initiative of My Brother's Keeper evolved since its creation? Yeah, you know, the it, that My Brother's Keeper is an effort to that started in the Obama administration to improve the life outcomes for black men and boys uh, or for boys and men of color. So including Latino and Native American. Um, and I was very fortunate to kind of work on one of the really precursors to it. Uh, when I hosted, pulled together a summit at the White House on uh, black male student achievement. Um, and to, you know, because there have been wide opportunity gaps in our education system, for example, and we need to shine a light on them because you can't fix a problem if you don't identify it. And uh, so that from that summit, through additional conversations and work with outside organizations, uh, a group of very dedicated and smart people came up with, including the president, with My Brother's Keeper, uh, which was an interagency policy effort to identify key points in time where boys and men of color either were on track or, or were falling off track, like reading by third grade, graduating high school on time, uh, entering the workforce after some career or post-secondary training not interacting with the criminal justice system in a negative way. Um, And that work was important, but then it also was about how do you mentor and intervene? Uh, I was very happy to be part of the first White House mentorship program where we mentored students from the DC, Maryland, Virginia region. And I still keep in touch with a lot of those students. Um, And so it's a really important initiative that now has spun off and is part of the Obama Foundation. Uh, and I was able to start the chapter in Montgomery County where I am, and I'm still very involved in, in that work um, because it's important and ongoing. One final question I'd like to ask you is, what advice would you give to young males struggling in their relationships with their fathers? How did you improve your relationship with your father? What suggestions would you give other parents and children struggling with the same frictions and tensions that you experienced? Yeah, you know, I would say keep trying would be the overarching, you know, don't give up on the relationship. Uh, And I know that can be hard. There are times where I would just, I was ready to write off my relationship with my father and just kind of put it in a bucket of, well, it didn't happen, didn't work. And I'm glad that I didn't. Um, And not only, and I didn't do it alone, I'm also very thankful that I had these other fathers who not only filled the void and the gap that was created from a lack of deep connection to my biological father. They also gave me the tools, uh, the love, the care, the concern, the capacity for forgiveness to re-engage and reconnect with my father. Um, And so I think, uh, and oftentimes other people and other relationships can help you gain the maturity and the growth uh, to ultimately forgive, which is what what, what is required. And um, uh, 
I was fortunate, though it wasn't as long as a period as I'd like. You know, my dad passes away at 64 in 2017 from prostate cancer. And we tell the story in the book about that process. He did get a chance to be a great grandfather to his three granddaughters. He didn't meet his grandson. Um, but their view of him is very different than my early childhood view of him. And I'm thankful that I had that time of reconciliation and growth and healing uh, and the ability to take care for him in the end of his life, which we did. Uh, and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And we had some very frank conversations that I talk about in the book. And if I would have shut down, if I would have not forgiven and not kept trying and he, if he didn't keep trying, uh, I think it, it would have, it would have been a very different outcome. And so I would say sometimes people aren't ready to, you know, like sometimes some time has to pass, but I think you just have to keep coming back to it. You have to have, obviously counseling can help therapy can help, uh, but don't give up on it because there is value there. There's history there. Um, and it's worth pursuing, uh, I think, in, in trying to achieve a greater understanding about the parent, the loved one, but also of yourself, because they're part of you. As we bring our dialogue to a close, I just wanted to end by thanking you, Will, for your time and availability. And thank you for everything that you sacrificed to make this book possible. Uh, this book was a moving and inspiring read that I deeply loved. And I just wanted to convey my heartfelt appreciation and gratitude to you for everything that you sacrificed and invested to writing this book and, and making this wisdom available to your readers. I appreciate that, Arian. I'm glad it had a connection and a, a meaning to you. And uh, I hope it does for, for many others. And, and thank you for thank you for saying that. And thank you for having me on today. Thank you. To our listeners, uh, I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books Network. I've been honored to be in dialogue with Will Jawando. He is the author of My Seven Black Fathers, a young activist memoir of race, family, and the mentors who made him whole, published in New York by Farrar Strauss and Giroux, 2022. He is an attorney, community leader, and councilman in Montgomery County, Maryland. Thank you.